Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Epiphanius, a Christian bishop on the island of Cyprus who died in the year 403, wrote a compendium of heresies called the Panarion, or medicine chest. His metaphorical medicine was intended as a remedy to the 80 heretical practices and groups he detailed in his book. Among his most famous accounts was a fanciful narrative on the rituals of the Gnostics. They foul their supposed assembly itself with the dirt of promiscuous fornication and eat and handle both human flesh and uncleanness. And if a guest who is of their persuasion arrives, they have a sign that men give women and women give men. A tickling of the palm as they clasp hands in supposed greeting to show that the visitor is of their religion. And once they recognize each other from this, They start feasting right away, and they set the table with lavish provisions for eating meat and drinking wine, even if they are poor. But then, after a drinking bout and, let us say, stuffing their overstuffed veins, they get hot for each other next, and the husband will move away from his wife and tell her, speaking to his own wife, get up, perform the agape with the brother. For after having made love with a passion of fornication in addition to lift their own blasphemy up to heaven, the woman and man receive the man's emission on their own hands. And they stand with their eyes raised heavenward, but the filth on their hands and pray, if you please, and offer that stuff on their hands to the true father of all and say, We offer thee this gift, the body of Christ. And so with the woman's admission, when she happens to be having her period, they likewise take the unclean menstrual blood they gather from her and eat it in common. And this, they say, is the blood of Christ. Procreation, he said, was never the goal of Gnostic sexual acts, and so when they did accidentally produce a child through their orgies, they sacrificed the infant and ate it with honey and pepper. Although Epiphanius may have believed the Gnostics actually practiced these rites, his accusations were as false as they were extreme. But his themes of salacious orgies, bodily fluids, and child sacrifice would echo through the ages in the form of the medieval blood accusation, also known as the blood libel, Renaissance myths of the witches' Sabbath, and anti-Catholic rhetoric of 19th century America and Canada. Our first series of our 2021 year is going to focus on ritual evil, more popularly called satanic ritual abuse. Where do stories of incestuous orgies and child murder in service of a malevolent spirit or deity come from, and what impact have they had on the culture that keeps them alive? I've more or less invented the term ritual evil because, in my humble opinion, it's more accurate as a descriptor for the family of practices we're going to discuss. Satanic is confusing because of its postmodern association with the Church of Satan, a group that is almost never directly implicated in charges of satanic abuse and also because of its direct invocation of Satan as the quintessential evil force in the universe. When stories are shared about ritual abuse, it is almost always done in the spirit of labeling the purported abusers as quintessentially evil. 
but their practice, or at least the way it's defined by their enemies, only sometimes makes reference to the worship of an entity like the Christian devil. In this two-part episode, we'll be publishing this week and next. So you're getting, uh, for those of you who are keeping track, this is a whole month of episodes straight in a row. I don't think we've ever done this. So we're doing a two-part series now, published back-to-back, two Fridays in a row. We're going to cover just under two millennia of stories of the Black Mass. Here we are. This is Occult Confessions, and I am joined for the first time in a year by James Kaplangis, Captain of the Table. I got to say, it feels great to be back. Yeah, man. Wow. It's because the table is sitting at our theater. (laughs) It's it's, it's very dusty right now, but... Yeah, that table. So you don't want to be captain in that these days. So James, what have you been up to? I've just been um, tutoring mathematics online and trying to trying to stay safe. You know, that's good advice for everyone. Everyone should tutor mathematics online and try to stay safe. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> we could not possibly start our fourth year on the podcast without our grandmaster of the order, Olivia Literal. Hello, it's twenty. 20- 21, but I'm still writing. For some reason, I keep writing 2018, and I don't know where I'm getting that from, but <laughs> that's where I am right now. <laughs> it's a nice round number. It's a good year. It was the year we was started. It? Was it a it good year? Fir- oh, well. First year of the podcast. It was a lot. It was a rough year, but Going yeah. back to, yeah. <laughs> Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant of the order, and I am delighted delighted to be with you for our fourth year here together. But we'll talk about that in just a second. First, let's pledge it out. We the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors actors do do solemnly commit commit ourselves ourselves to a full (laughs) and honest telling (laughs) of the history of the occult as far as we know it. As far as we know it. You that guys the were worst both in two been. different places. I couldn't. I didn't know where to go. That was. It, it sounded like we were separate. Let's call yeah, that on like my end. On my side, we were. It was perfect. Oh, <laughs> I, there's like a delay, a major delay for me or something. Let's say that that was our version of the pledge as performance art. Oh, yeah? okay, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Okay. yeah. Olivia, open up those plugs. Plug, plug, and plug. All right, so I got two things I want to talk about in the plugs today. First, our wonderful patrons. Now, we're splitting up the patron list into uh, the two episodes. Uh, so we're going to talk about, just so everyone gets their moment, because uh, we have had a, a fairly large crew of people joining the Patreon. And we are so grateful for that. Um, that is really helping us uh, start to take steps in, in the right direction as far as pre- creating new uh, content. Uh, again, full month of episodes we're producing right now. So Back to back to back. We have never, I don't think we have ever had four episodes back to back to back. So we want to thank Benjamin M, also Stanton T, Sam L, Dennis H, and Chandra L. So thanks, guys. Uh, And we will be, uh, how you call it, doing more of those next time. But I don't want to close up the plugs yet. I want to just take up the, there you go. James, you want to celebrate these folks? Oh, yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. It, it means, means a lot. Everything, pretty much. It does. <laughs> Thanks, I guys. 
cool. Okay. Did that not sound sincere? Why are you laughing? I know. I I'm fine with it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, we'll okay. let it. We'll it let was Stanton sincere. And Sam and yeah. Dennis and Chandra and Benjamin tell us if they if they're satisfied. So episode 100 is coming this year. This is the year when we will oh, wow. hit episode 100. So there's there's some things I want to talk about, uh, and I'm going to take up the rest of the plugs just to discuss this. This is our first episode, uh, and I'm going to sort of split up my first episode. I always do first episode of the year. You know, Olivia knows I, I like to, to allow myself a little space to talk abstractly about the podcast, where it is, where it's going. And I think episode 100 is a good marker for that. So things that I would like to accomplish by episode 100. Some of these things have already been done. We got a nice uh, crew of patrons, but we got to grow that Patreon for sure because uh, we're looking at YouTube and and expanding content and we're looking at doing more episodes uh, every year. Uh, And that's only going to be possible if we can grow that Patreon base. We're also going to be creating new content for Patreon. So all good things that are happening. If you search for a cult podcast, we're generally on the top of that list. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, there's a couple of different folks who rate us number one in the realm of a cult podcast. Now, this sounds like I'm bragging. I, I am not. I, I do think when it comes to a cult podcast, which is quite a niche, well. we, we've we've mastered the as far as we're, we're doing what we can do here. But here's my concern, friends, uh, all of my friends out there in, in confessor land. We are being beaten by podcasts. And by that, I mean, podcasts are drawing more listeners who have an anti-occult conspiracy message in the occult search. So if you search for occult podcasts, you will find these shows who are basically anti-everything we stand for on this show, anti-open-mindedness, etc., who are promoting a a message that I'm going to at least spend the next six episodes, five to six episodes, taking, taking down. Um, so any way you can get us out there, (laughs) it's just good work. It's good for the community. It's good for our collective community. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I have a big head. I really think that it, it is only fair that a podcast that takes seriously alternative religion and various belief systems and paranormal phenomena, um, should be doing better than podcasts that, that take us down. Isn't that fair, Olivia? Yeah, it is. I think we can brag a little bit, though. I think we're allowed to brag a little bit. You okay, know? all right. Because we're doing. This is the moment. We're doing Start it. Of the year. I mean, I looked up Victoria Woodhull on Google, and I found us like immediately. We were the top. There we so were. I'd like well, to that's think awesome. we can yeah. brag a little bit. All right, so anyway. that's it. That's as far as we're going to brag. But we need your help yeah. to make this. This has got to be the occult go-to, not these other podcasts about nonsense and conspiracy it's, and what it's have It's sad you. that my teacher had to teach us in college about QAnon. <laughs> like she made it part of her yeah. <laughs> lecture yeah. to make sure that we all understood that, yeah. Well, spoiler alert, we're going there too this I year. know. Uh, so <laughs> uh, here's the other thing, and then we'll get out of here. Um, we got to decide when the 100th episode happens, uh, and, and we invite your feedback on this. It could mm. be when the dial turns to 100, but we've had some sort of extras and previews in the dial. So when we actually hit number 100 on the on the feed, that won't technically be our 100th episode. I'm going to hit my 100th episode that I've written. Olivia's written a handful of episodes as well, which gets us closer to 100 a little bit faster. Oh, uh, so there's so, all sorts of definitions, right? About when, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. When, when do we hit 100? 
Uh, so we we are open to your your input on that. We'll we'll well. I think what we're going to end up doing doing is celebrating 100 like for a month. We'll have a month or two. <laughs> Ooh, a month long birthday. That's <laughs> fun. Yeah, hundredth nice. episode. All right, that's enough. Let's close up those plugs, Olivia. Plug plug plug. Although it's difficult to know much about ancient Gnostic ritual. Remember we were talking about Gnostics back when I started the episode? Yep, way back yep. when. Those were the days. And James showed up and everything went to hell. Uh, given the ephemeral nature of performance, it's unlikely that the Gnostics participated in anything like cannibalistic orgies. I do not mean to take that away from you, but that's just the way it is. Amen. Fun. Amen. Fundamental <laughs> to... That's what the Gnostics would say. Yeah. Fundamental to Gnostic belief was the inferiority of the material world in relation to God. And so most Gnostics practiced an ascetic life. Ascetic, not, you know, aesthetic. Meaning that they deprived themselves of material pleasure. The Gnostics, with their creation story that veered off the prescribed path of the Christian canon, resulted in a very unorthodox view of the nature of God's created universe and were considered heretical enough from a church father's perspective. Uh, So... Really, just in and of themselves, the point I'm trying to make here is we don't need stories of cannibalistic orgies. They're already heretics. <laughs> They're already weird enough to just be heretics on their own. So why would Epiphanius and whoever he got these stories from create these elaborate lies about their rituals? I think Epiphanius is really only the literate end of a gossip chain. We have to bear in mind, you know, it's the year 400. How many people really know how to write? He's the guy who writes down these stories, but he's not really necessarily or even probably the guy who makes them up they're in the wind people are orally passing these tales around so epiphanius sees value in recording these stories and and believes that there's merit in in accepting them as the truth what's interesting about this to me is that the gnostics are not alone even in this time period 200 years earlier follow me here similar accusations were made against christians This is the second century. So the fourth century, the Christians are making these accusations against the Gnostics. The second century, the Christians, the Romans are saying to the Christians that they are doing these very, very similar things. This was before the religion had spread enough to win the heart and mind of a Roman emperor and become the state religion of Rome. Romans accused Christians of worshiping a donkey god, number one. You know where they got that, of course. They claimed that a Christian initiation rite involved covering a child with bread dough and then having the initiate, unaware that there was a child inside the dough, stab through it and kill the child. See, that's just ignorant. <laughs> Which part? The stabbing of a child or the rumor? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that the person didn't know, just all of it. It seems <laughs> it didn't... hokey to me. <laughs> so if they had told him before he stabbed the kid, then that would be... More on the up and up for you. It would at least be believable. but no. Nobody unknowingly stabs through bread. Uh, but after we stab, the, stab through the bread, kill the child, the assembly drinks the child's blood. This is all, I mean, you can see the bread and uh-huh. the wine, right? This is basically your, your um, uh, what the hell? Why can't I come up with the communion? Sorry. So they're trying to like barbarize the. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. Taking the things they know and taking them to this sort of dark place. But that dark place is almost always going to be orgies and child murder. We're going to see this again and again and again. Those are the hot buttons. Hot buttons. So the early Christian ritual of agape in which members shared food with each other at charitable feasts 
and performed the Eucharist was labeled an occasion for orgiastic sex conducted in the dark, such that members had no idea if they were coupling with their own family members. So we can take the communion Eucharist and turn it into this weird cannibalistic child thing. And then we can take this like, you know, basically church picnic and turn it into a incest orgy. Hell yeah. Oh. <laughs> Significantly, legends of Christian cannibalism were limited to the second century. According to scholar Norman Kahn, who is excellent, writes really excellent books on the subject. In the first century, Christians were too small a sect to be distinguished from Jews. And in the third century, they had become too large to continue to malign it the way that these rumors had. So basically, they were the perfect size to tell dark ritual evil rumors about in the second century and exclusively in the second century. Very similar stories of inverted Christian ritual symbolism and child murder enjoyed a kind of vogue in the Middle Ages, often attached to accusations of heresy. So going back to the Gnostics, the Christians were the heretics in the second century. Then when they became dominant, they started looking around at everybody else. And it wasn't enough to call them heretics. This is the through line here. <laughs> Spoiler. I can, I've can. i already said it, but I'll say it again. Child murder and orgies over and over and over and over again. So let's see this in the Middle Ages. Um, it starts, uh, Norman Kahn tells the strange story of German inquisitor Conrad of Marburg, who became one of the most dangerous people in Europe during his lifetime. You guys heard of this guy? Nope. No, I've never heard. Okay, well, you're going to be horrified. So he's like a serial killer. <laughs> he was a kind of celebrity preacher enlisted by popes to preach the crusade. He rode on a donkey from town to town in imitation of Christ and was greeted by adoring crowds. In the year 1231, he became Germany's first appointed inquisitor. Once Conrad and his judges accused someone of heresy, they were often tried and executed the same day. The only way to escape execution was to admit your heresy and name other heretics. And if you couldn't name any, Conrad would name some for you, generally selected from the local nobility. So do you have the scene here? He's got you. You know you're going to die that day unless you start saying names. And if you got no names, he will give you names. And you got to say, yep, that's a heretic. That's a pretty popular theme. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty wide net he's casting. <laughs> it's basically whoever he wants, um, particularly rich people. When Conrad accused, I mean, I'm with him there to some extent. When Conrad accused Henry of Seine, who had endowed monasteries and churches and gone on a crusade with witnesses who had seen him riding on a crab at an all-night orgy. <laughs> Excuse <Okay>. me. <laughs> Say that again. He accused Henry of Seine based on the reports of witnesses who had seen him riding on a crab at an all-night orgy. Now, we have some crabs here in the great state of Maryland, none of which a grown man, I think, could ride. They're not riding blue crabs. That's not our state sport, blue crab riding. That's the devil's work. Uh, so, it's the devil's crab. So, mm. interestingly, when he accused Henry of Seine with this bizarre story, the clergy refused to support him. Enraged, Conrad left to return to his native Marburg. The king and archbishop offered him an escort, but he arrogantly refused, and he was promptly set upon and killed, presumably by his enemies, to prevent him from serial murdering any more villages in Germany. Yeah, that seems right. Right, like, it's a good move on the part of the Germans in the area. 
The Pope yeah. called for Conrad's murderers to be caught and executed, but the German people refused, with one bishop suggesting Conrad be disinterred and burned for a heretic. Whoa! <laughs> French Revolution stuff. This was a rare instance of the people succeeding against the church and required the support of high-ranking nobles, and Conrad's downfall was only possible after he had brought a reign of terror down on the region. The real lesson of Conrad's story was how easy it was to construct narratives of heresy to bring down nearly anyone you wanted to execute. Now we're going to get back to the major themes here. You guys good on Conrad? Yeah. Yeah. He went after rich people, so then they did something about it. Mm. Yep, yep. He killed a bunch of them. They killed a bunch of him. <laughs> so there was a fine line between orthodoxy, <laughs> fine line between orthodoxy and heresy in the medieval period, and accusations of heresy bred familiar stories of ritual evil. In the 13th century, the Waldensians. You guys ever heard of the Waldensians? Yeah, just from class, though. <laughs> Where are they based out of? Germany. Cool. Uh, also France. So Olivia, your what's the name of your class again? Uh, it's like oh god, it's got a long ass name, but it's basically it's a history class that's about like heretics or just like people that were persecuted in medieval societies. So medieval heretic class. Yeah, yeah, that's I, fun. Yeah, it's a good time. Is it a good time? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a lot of reading about Jewish community massacres. And well, just that a hold lot that of sad shit. You know that you We're know how there. I feel. Thomas yeah. of Monmouth could suck a dick. Wait, 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 wait. I know, I know. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. You're getting ahead of me. Okay. This is all coming. I've done this week. Literally this week. Anyway. Let's start with the Waldensians who were good Christians. Yeah. And by good Christians, I mean heretics. So James, <laughs> yes. to, to update you, they renounced the world. They pledged to model their lives on the apostles and they practiced absolute chastity. Did these sound like devil worshipers to you, James? No, not, not at all. They sound like nerds. <laughs> Wrong. Oh. <laughs> okay. So the Waldensians, here's where things got rough for them, James, and, and where, where you'll see that they were more than nerds. They did not recognize the authority of the official church and did not live according to this. Okay. So this is why they said this. It was because the church, they said, did not live according to the same strictures as the Waldensians. So what they did is they created a separate Waldensian clergy. And how do you suppose the Pope felt about that? Angry? <laughs> That's a trick question. He loved it. Am I right? No, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. Oh, so okay. in, in France. It changed his whole life. The, yeah, he was like, oh, we got, you guys are right. I have, I'm going to change my ways. No, that's a lie. In, in <laughs> France, the Waldensians believed that the Pope and his ministers were not adequately virginal. Let me say that again. That the Pope was not enough of a virgin and so rejected the church's hierarchy. Come back in two years when you're more virgin. <laughs> two years? <laughs> when you're more virgin? <laughs> Like it grows back? Like what's going to happen? <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> what's this? The Borgia Pope was supposed to have been. There's a lot of popes mm. who had ch children and all sorts of funky yeah. stuff. So I get the Waldensians point here, but you don't go around pointing at the Pope and saying, you're not a virgin. So the Pope was, as James said, angry. Uh, and he was particularly angry with the usurpation of authority, so the Waldensians creating their own hierarchy. But rather than focus exclusively on just stamping that out, stamping out the clergy and reinstalling 
the the Catholic clergy in these Waldensian towns. The Waldensians' inquisitors and persecutors invented tales of devil worship and incest. This is just like the Gnostic situation. Their actual heresy has nothing to do with devil worship or sex or any of it. In fact, in the case of the Waldensians, they're nerds. They're not even touching each other. They're not even thinking about it. They feel bad uh, when they look lustily at dinner. This is not a thing that they're engaged in, but we invent these stories. You see what I mean? The Waldensians were accused of believing that Lucifer and the fallen angels were unjustly thrown from heaven and would one day rise up and be blessed. Inquisitors also held that the Waldensians believed God knew nothing of what was done under earth, and so they went into caves to have sex with their sisters, mothers, and daughters. Again, these are the nerds who practice absolute chastity and are trying to model their lives on the apostles. Minus incest. Except for their cave incest, yeah. You'll never see it because it's in the cave. What happens in the cave? It's hard to disprove. If it's in a cave? Yeah. You know, like, I feel like that's part of the fear mongering is that like, it's got to be, oh yeah, it's, you can't, you can't see it yourself because it's, they're off doing it in secret and I know about it. So I'm telling you. And every time you pass a cave, you think to yourself, oh boy, what's going on in there? I'll just stop in, <laughs> peek in, see what's <laughs> going on. James and I are shrinking away from the mouth of the cave and Olivia's walking right in there. <laughs> hey guys. Anybody anyway. banging their sister? So- just wondering. <laughs> Another group, the Fraticelli, or Spiritual Franciscans, which were not not the same as the Franciscans. The Order of Franciscans was within the fold of the church, but the Fraticelli were like extreme Franciscans. They were too extreme for the church. So they broke with the church because the official clergy were not ascetic enough for them, going back to the Gnostics. The Fraticelli believed the clergy should not possess any personal wealth, and so the Pope in particular wasn't poor enough for them because he had that fancy hat and the red shoes. For this, they were accused of cooking infants over fire and drinking their ashes with wine. Their remote villages were raided and they were tried and burned for heretics. Ashes and wine is gross. I'm sorry. I mean, the concept is also gross, but why why that way? Where where are we on the timeline right now? This is about the 1200s, 1300s. 1200s, right. Okay. Right in the middle, right in the medieval period. Uh, but yeah, the Gnostics, so with the Christians in 200, the Gnostics in 400, we're in 1200, 1300. It's the same story, basically. Children are being murdered. People are committing incest in secret places over and over and over again, always in direct contradiction to whatever the heretical group is supposed to be doing. You got me? Interestingly, the church, which was the dominant power in Europe, tended to portray itself as an underdog against these small, often remote heretical groups. This is going to ring true, like if you guys think about this in our present culture. If Catholic priests weren't vigilant in their efforts to control the influence of these groups, they would overwhelm and undermine Western Christendom. So like two villages of Waldensians in France and Germany were going to bring down the Catholic Church. This is how the Catholic Church talked about them. Do you see? The minority was the oppressor, not the oppressed. So it it was a a matter of misappropriating that minority label from the oppressed group onto the oppressor. To generate fear. It's the imperiled white man, right? To a large extent. Whenever we hear the narrative of the imperiled white man. Now, James and I are white men. James, do you feel threatened? No, but I'm less white than you. (laughs) 
that's true. That's true. So, how do you feel, Rob? <laughs> I feel slightly threatened by your you, by your Greekness. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is this is that um, you know they're going to come and get me if I you know I'm truly the oppressed one as opposed to the group who is in the minority position. No, I don't feel threatened at all. Hashtag coexist. Beautiful. That's a beautiful sentiment, James. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Olivia, here we go. More famous than the persecution of the Fraticelli were the blood libel persecutions of European Jews. Talked about this a little bit on the show, uh, but but I want to go ahead and and get through this uh, in the medieval period. I want to make this part of the story that we're telling about the Black Mass and about uh, ritual evil, because it is. It's really the same basic theme it's the same mold it's the same model the blood libel or blood accusation either term more or less works i think it was originally called the blood accusation but because it's libelous uh, a lot of scholars and folks decided that it would be more accurate to call it the blood libel because the accusation is of course false so that at least makes it clear that this is all completely made up right from the get-go So the blood libel centered around a false folk belief that a secret cabal of Jews sacrificed a Christian child every Passover. We talked about this uh, in our Protocols of the Elders of Zion episode. Do you remember that, Olivia? Was James, were you there? I don't know who else was doing that with us. Uh, I remember it briefly, but that was a while ago. It has. That was so. That was the last time we covered conspiracy, satanic Mm -hmm. conspiracy, a full year ago when we did that series. Back when we could still be in the theater. Wow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) A long time ago. So, uh, Thomas of Monmouth, a monk responsible for- Oh, I'm sorry. I literally can't stand this. I'm sorry. Continue. Do the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I really have like a hatred for some of these people that lived way too long ago for me to truly hate them, but continue. If I say his name again, will you boo again? Probably. I won't. I won't. I promise. Good old Thomas. Thomas of of Monmouth, a monk responsible for writing the hagiography of the martyred child, St. William of Norwich. Norwich. Sorry, my British listeners. Says that William was crucified and murdered by Jews at Passover in the year 1144. So still in that same medieval period. When he was eight years old, little William went to work for a skinner and had regular exchanges with Jewish clientele, becoming known for his good craftsmanship. That eight-year-old boy, he could he could skin some leather, this kid. Yeah, he was supposed to be so good. Like, yeah. too good. Too good. Too good to be true, little William. Yeah. Uh, so four years later, says Monmouth, a messenger pretending to be the archdeacon's cook was sent by, by a secret Jewish cabal at Passover time to collect William. You following me so far? Unfortunately. So here comes this guy. He's like, I am. I cook for the archdeacon. Can you come help me cook some stuff for the archdeacon? The messenger told William that the archdeacon of Norwich wanted him to come and work as an assistant in the kitchen. After staying a night with the Jewish messenger, pretending to be the cook, William suspected nothing. So I guess the messenger did a good job of acting like whatever an archdeacon's cook would act like. (laughs) James has a picture in his head of how this is all going. He wears an apron, a little hat. Okay, now it gets dark. They attacked him at dinner the next day. They tied his head with a teasel, which as best as I can figure is a kind of ball gag. 
Does that sound right? Do you guys know what a teasel is? You guys into BDSM? They said it when I was reading about it. It said they would like attach it from behind the head, and it like forced your jaw like open. But it was like a wooden ball gag, I guess, kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. Teasel is your word of the day. Yeah. Uh, then they shaved off his hair, stabbed his head with thorns, mimicking Jesus's crown of thorns, and then they fastened him to a cross and argued over who would kill him, because apparently they hadn't decided that in advance. Very elaborate plot, but they hadn't hadn't picked that that one piece out. Strangely, the wounds on his body, which was found in the woods with no cross anywhere around him, suggested that it was possible that only one hand and one foot had been nailed. So if he had been nailed to a cross, any wounds that they found on him suggested that for some reason they would have nailed only one hand and one foot and tied the other somehow. Ran out of nails. I, you know, they were, they clearly didn't prepare. They got the archdeacon cook part down, but after that, it was all improvised. Doesn't Monmouth try to say that they were like trying to make it look like it wasn't Jewish people that did it? Like they were trying to say, like, oh, they did it wrong on purpose. Yes. <laughs> which yeah, is the yes, dumbest. That was... shit. <laughs> anyway. So Thomas of Monmouth's argument was that they had nailed one and tied the other to prevent any investigator from guessing that he'd been ritually sacrificed in a mock crucifixion by a secret cabal of Jews, which immediately in a Jewish is man's house. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, then they stabbed him through his left side up to his heart, killing him and poured boiling water over him to clear the blood that ran out. After a day or so debating what to do with the body, again, they didn't plan very well. They're figuring this out as they go. They carried him out to Thorpe Wood and hung him from a tree. Now, if we find this tale to be pretty fantastic today, which clearly we do, James, do you find this a little fantastic? Or very plausible? Yeah, it's a little hard to believe. They did a lot of stuff with that body. Yes, they did a whole lot. Um, The truth of the matter is Thomas of Monmouth's contemporaries, the people who lived with him at this time, also found this story to be pretty ridiculous. Uh, So we shouldn't look back on the medieval period and say these people were all benighted fools. In fact, it was mostly just Thomas in this particular circumstance. Much of Thomas's hagiography of St. William is a defense of what he calls his simple and faith-based analysis over the intellectual skepticism of his critics. He didn't arrive at Nourich until a few years after William's death. So it's not like he was right there to collect evidence and like photograph the body and stuff. This is not CSI. He's coming well after the fact. It was like six years. Yeah, and his goal, yes, yeah. and his goal is to aid the boy's canonization and also to promote his anti-Semitic version of what happened, basically based on no evidence at all. Because, yeah, like Olivia said, the body's long since been buried. None of the things he claims happened happened, and none of the people who are around him are saying this is okay. So by faith-based analysis, basically he says, you know, he's been like divinely inspired to write this anti-Semitic story about this kid without having a shred of evidence to defend his perspective. He just knows that this is what happened. He just wanted the cult to grow so that he could have everyone pilgrimaging to his monastery and then yeah, it's just he was so dumb. He was so dumb. I'm sorry. He was you so dumb. Boo again? Go ahead, boo, boo again. Monmouth, <laughs> more like 
no mouth shut up i don't know i hate him i really do <laughs> that was perfect third grade taunt yeah that's all i got <laughs> So the only thing we can know based on the evidence uh, about William is that he appears to have been killed and his body abandoned in the woods. Everything else is pure speculation, divinely revealed to Thomas and whoever chose to agree with him, which after the fact, you know, became a lot of people. But I think they didn't understand how ridiculous he was to people at the time that in that moment when he's inventing this story, it's based on nothing or next to nothing. Sticking with the UK, uh, which was by no means the only site of blood libel accusations, but is the location of some of the earliest recorded examples. So that's the only reason we're sticking with the UK. Don't get mad at me, <laughs> British listeners. Um, I understand that this this was happening throughout Europe, but you guys just have really good versions of this for us to go through. There's another incident that took place in the town of Lincoln. So the events of Hugh's death in 1255 were first recorded by the monk Matthew Paris and eventually popularized in a ballad, Sir Hugh, or the Jew's Daughter, in case you weren't sure where this was going. Matthew records that the Jews imprisoned Hugh for 10 days, fed him on milk and other childish food, and then disseminated word to all the Jews of Europe to send a delegation to observe the sacrifice of Hugh. What is childish food? What do we think? He's milk and... Milk, uh, oats... Right, that's like cereal. That's an old cereal. Yeah, like they weren't picky back then, right? Like what what were they eating? Sweet cheese. (laughs) Sweet cheese. Sweet cheese and oats. (laughs) They scourged him till the blood flowed. They crowned him with thorns and mocked him and spat upon him. Each of them also pierced him with a knife. And they made him drink gall and scoffed at him with blasphemous insults and kept gnashing their teeth and calling him Jesus, the false prophet. And after tormenting him in diverse ways, they crucified him and pierced him to the heart with a spear. When the boy was dead, they took the body down from the cross and for some reason disemboweled it. It is said for the purpose of their magic arts. James, can you name a sweet cheese? No. <laughs> Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's goat cheeses are kind of sweet. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. What's okay. that? You can put cranberries in a cheese. Can't, a brie, a brie is kind of sweet. Brie is sweet. Yeah. Brie is not sweet. It's a childish it? cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like these are fancy for <laughs> the Middle Ages. So the boy's mother discovered his body in a well in the house of a Jew. Quote, quote, house of a Jew whose child he had been playing with. This man, Coppin, was a leading figure in Lincoln's Jewish community. The cabal, it seems, had attempted to bury little St. Hugh, but the earth vomited him forth, and so they hid him in a well. So they stuck him in a hole in the ground, and the earth was like, no, this is an injustice in the eyes of earth, and spit him back out. So they were like, okay, we'll stick him in a well, that'll get you. And the earth was like, I can't do anything about this. this you is, caught me there. <laughs> this, is a, this is a water-based situation now. <laughs> so when, we're having too much fun. But it was a long time ago. I think we can joke a little. Yeah. When Coppin was questioned, he was offered a plea deal for exposing his co-conspirators. And so he created a story to fit what his confessors wanted to hear. Just like Conrad of Margaret Barberg back in the day. He said, if you give me somebody else, I'll let you go. Coppin said that every year Jews crucify a boy as an insult to Jesus. 91 more Jewish people were tried in London 
for the single crime of Little St. Hugh's murder. How many were found guilty? Oh, I'm getting there. Good question. Okay. The the only definite piece of evidence in the case of Little St. Hugh is the body of a little boy, which was found most unfortunately drowned in a well. There are any number of explanations for how he got there. Most obviously that he accidentally fell in a well. But Little St. Hugh's investigators determined that he had been murdered before he even got into the well. John of Lexington questioned Coppin and seems to have developed the theory that Hugh had been murdered and not fallen into the well accidentally, and also that he had been crucified, because you gotta crucify him. John then told Coppin this story, and Coppin confessed to it, you see? So it's not like Coppin told this story. This guy, John of Lexington, his inquisitor, came in and was like, didn't this happen? And Coppin was like, no. And John was like, but it did. And Coppin was like, yeah, all right, fine. That's how we got this tale. Olivia, uh, you you follow the true crime. Isn't it occasionally true that some policemen uh, will coerce confessions even right now? Yeah, for sure. The idea of Jews ritually murdering Christian children, don't want to say any more on that subject. I get it. No, no. We had to strike the record. <laughs> in, case, in case you end up getting interrogated and forced to confess to something. They'll never break me. it's okay the idea of jews ritually murdering christian children goes back to a witness in the norwich case a hundred years before that witness was named theobald boo sorry he sucks too theobald of cambridge sucks so theobald had converted to christianity (laughs) from judaism yeah traitor Testifying Sorry, I'm the... stopping. <laughs> You're taunting these long dead men. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Theobald was testifying in the Nourich case and claimed that a council of Jews at Narbonne, using a system of drawing lots, had arrived at Nourich as the site for the sacrifice. In the case of Little St. Hugh, there's a historical event that may have appeared to resemble this particular event, uh, this imagined gathering. It's likely that the chief Jews of England had gathered for the marriage of Rev Barakia's daughter. You know this guy, Olivia? Rev Barakia? You talk about this guy? I don't, I don't know. The name is kind of familiar, but I don't know him. He was one of the leading Jewish scholars in England, and so a lot of prominent Jews had been drawn to the area for his daughter's wedding. But it had nothing to do with any of the crap that Theobald ultimately said. After Coppin, oh. 18 more of his so-called co-conspirators. Okay, so now getting back to uh, Lincoln and Little St. Hugh in the well. Now get this guy Coppin. After him, 18 more of his so-called co-conspirators were hanged and 74 were saved by Richard of Cornwall acting on the advice of a band of either Franciscan or Dominican friars. History isn't quite sure which one. So they, they did hang Coppin and they did hang 18 more people, but then 74 these friars intervened and they were like, you can't just hang 90 Jews, guys. That's that's not cool. Wow. The king, Henry III, who was a pretty weak monarch who was easily led around by churchmen, had a financial incentive to actually back these persecutions because he collected on the debts owed to these 18 and sold their houses or collected fines from those rent- renting their houses. He also collected fines from these 74 who were pardoned. So the crown had a financial motive to persecute these guys. That happened a lot, too. That's a common theme. Yeah. Whenever you need money, right? Well, I mean, that's how the Templars were persecuted. Philip 
uh, the fair was interested in persecuting the Templars, who we're not going to talk about today because they got their whole episode, whole episode already. But he wanted cash in part, like he wanted a few things, but cash was one of them. A lot of times, the kings seemed like they would save the Jews just to have them, like they would have them under their protection, just to be like, "Ah, oh, yes, these are my Jews. They work for me." But then that made Christians hate them more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unjustly, but but then it gets right. into the whole money lending thing. But. Story for another day. <laughs> but that was forced on them too, anyway. Let's, uh, well, I, I'll let Olivia rant in a second. Let me wrap this up. If you want to rant, Olivia, then I no, will, I will leave a nice open space. You can cut so, everything I've said out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I just have a lot of feelings. I'm sorry. <laughs> Writing on the story of it's fine. Writing on the story of Little Saint Hugh, the folklorist Joseph Jacobs argues that these accusations were based on a complete misinterpretation of Judaic tradition and belief. From a religious perspective, Jews regard blood as unclean, uh, and they have at this point given up all sacrifice. Uh, that happened with the destruction of the temple in the fall of Jerusalem. But in the Bible. It talks about Jews conducting sacrifices, particularly in the Gospels, where Jesus is critiquing the Jews for their their sacrificial practices. So a lot of medieval Christians just misunderstood what Judaism was, what rabbinical Judaism was. You see what I mean? They thought they were still conducting sacrifices. They had the Old Testament stories, but not necessarily the Minor Prophets updates. Right, right. They weren't reading their, I don't know, Torah. So maybe they were reading the Torah, actually. Rabbinical teaching holds that prayer has been substituted for sacrifice in Jewish practice. So in in contemporary Judaism and and modern Judaism, like even in this period. So despite the prevalence of animal sacrifice in the Gospels, it had in fact been long since discontinued and forbidden by the time these trials, Norwich and uh, and Lincoln, were held. All right, that's, that's it for part one here. Uh, so, uh, you guys, Olivia, this is your moment, James, if you want to rant or boo or yell at anyone, this is the time to do it. I'm going to let Olivia go first. Oh my God. I don't know. You can't just like tell me to go. Okay. Well, I'll start. I just, I don't have a lot to say. I just think that it's terrible that these people, you know, inject fear into, into the minds of their constituents just because, you know, they're afraid of losing their own status or or they're worried about gaining more or whatever. It's unfair. And and uh, it holds, it's a myth. So the ritual evil myth is a thing that lasts thousands of years, and the blood libel myth really has power for thousands of years. It World never went II, away. The Holocaust is 1940, right? And right now, we, we're hearing stories in America of a Rothschild, uh, what is it? What was it? A Rothschild... Uh, satellite setting fire to the forests of California. Jewish satellite, right? So it's not dead. It's, it's not. Still with us. There's still white supremacist groups that I, I literally was talking to Rob about it. I had to read this article about like, it was in 2015, this freaking Facebook group of, I guess it's called the BW. It's like a su- white supremacy group specifically in England. Not to target England again, sorry guys. But <laughs> they like marched basically on Little Hugh's like grave, which since the church has like put a plaque being like kind of being like our bad guys, but the most the church will ever be like our bad guys. But basically being like, you know, 
he's not a saint, but we didn't, it's okay, like, everything's fine. But then these white supremacist people are like, you're wrong, he's a saint, and that Jew confessed, and that historian from the medieval time wrote it down, so it must be true, and it's just stupid. It's stupid that people still are using a stupid concept to justify being assholes. Yep, uh, and this is ritual evil in a nutshell. A lot of the stories that we're telling in this episode and the next episode, or part two, so it's all, I guess, one one piece, but in part two of the Black Mass, all the tales of the Black Mass have staying power. And even though they can be debunked in all the ways that we're doing, we can just ignore that. And, you know, the conspiracy or the belief doesn't care that there is no evidence for this event. All it cares is that somebody at some point said something that makes us, that, that, that adheres to our biases, that makes us feel like our biases are correct. It makes us believe what we want to believe if we're hateful. And all these ancient people, well, not even ancient, but everyone that was like chronicling the world's events just kept piggybacking off of each other being like, yeah, they did this, they did that. Like, I don't know. It's very upsetting. Okay, that's it for part one. Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. I want to thank uh, Luke Kinnaman, Sean Priest, Savannah Barrett, Brandon Walls, and Andrew Mims. You have not heard all of their voices on today's episode, but they are the crew who uh, are working on the two-parter on the Black Mass. Thank you all for your excellent work. Uh, joining me around the table, James Kaplanges, captain of the table. Yes, yes, I'm captain of the table, but the table is gone. It's an online table. It's a digital yeah, table. Yeah, online digital table. <laughs> and Olivia Literal, Grandmaster of the Order. I'm sorry for yelling so much. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't yelling at any of you. And, I'm not yelling uh, at anyone except for white supremacist groups. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant. Uh, and uh, I'll catch you next week when we get to part two of the story of the Black Mass. Bye. This is a test to see how James's voice sounds. Right now, I'm just recording some voice sounds for you, but if you want, I can try some other sounds, like maybe some laughs. Here's one laugh. <laughs> okay, here's another laugh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that might have been a little too much, but here's one more laugh. <laughs> uh.